This is the Happy Dev Podcast with me, James Brooks. This week, I'm speaking with Jess Archer. Over the last 15 years of working with PHP and JavaScript professionally, Jess has worked on a plethora of interesting and cool projects ranging from a chemical warehouse management system, a crypto trading bot, and even software for the police. Jess lives in Brisbane, Australia, and enjoys mountain biking, skateboarding, dark beer, spicy food, and heavy music. Jess is also a mother to six-year-old twins, a cat, and a dog. Is there anything you would like to add to that, Jess? Uh, I think you actually got it really well. That's uh, yeah, quite quite um, quite comprehensive. <laughs> I um, I'm a massive fan of Laravel, Vue, and Tailwind. It's kind of my favorite stack at the moment. Um, I've done a lot of remote work over the years, uh, working in offices, and at the moment I'm doing some contracting. The only other thing to say is that um, I do a podcast with JMac, and I also spoke at Laracon Australia this year. What was your talk about, Jess? I spoke about the Laravel Developer's Guide to View SPAs, which was basically the talk that I wish existed when I started my View SPA with a Laravel backend, um, because there are a lot of challenges I found that there wasn't really much help out there for. So yeah, I learned some stuff that gave me some material for a talk. Oh, nice. I heard a lot of good feedback on it. Yeah, yeah, I uh, got a lot of good feedback from it. And now I'm just trying to see if I can learn some more cool, interesting stuff to hopefully come up with another talk. Uh, will you be at um, Atlanta next year? I don't know, but I would like to submit a talk potentially if I can think of something. Ah, nice. I'm looking forward to that. Jess, when did you first become aware of your own mental health? Oh, wow. Um, that's a a tricky but good question. Um I guess it's it's something that you when you're younger I guess you you hear about it and you think that it's something that other people have but then you don't necessarily realize that it's something that you might have yourself you kind of think that oh it's you know you have to be really sort of down in the dumps or go through like this this severe thing for it to actually be considered you know potentially a mental health problem so I would say that there was probably times where I definitely experienced mental health issues but didn't necessarily recognize them, especially because, you know, many years ago these things weren't really talked about. Um, so, yeah, there's been there's been quite a few times in my life where I've had potentially, like maybe they could be considered panic attacks, I'm not sure, um, definitely just times of, of incredible stress. Um, sometimes where I've handled it really, really well, but there's other times where, especially when other things are going on that it, you know, that I don't handle it so well. I mean, I've, I've definitely dealt with, with other sorts of mental health issues, such as like body image issues. Um, I had a lot of, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to, to describe, I guess, but for quite a while, I've just felt that my body kind of didn't live up to what, I guess, the expectations that I had were for myself. Um, so I dealt with a lot of, uh, kind of negative feelings there. Um, I actually saw, do you think that those expectations come from perhaps like the movies and, uh, social media t- TV? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think just, you know, as a society, we are kind of exposed to, yeah, the ways people are supposed to be both uh, physically, also mentally. I mean, especially in, in software development with imposter syndrome. 
Um, we're always constantly worrying that we're not up to scratch. Um, and yeah, so just the just the pressure that society puts on us for how we are yeah. supposed to be is is you know pretty tough sometimes. You just mentioned imposter syndrome, then. Yes. When we um, were chatting before recording the episode, you said that you were worried about not having experienced enough serious mental health issues to be worth coming on the podcast. Yes. Um, and then you get, then you mentioned your own experience with the imposter syndrome. What are your experiences with that? Um, it's something that I think. I deal with pretty much constantly. I mean, as developers, we're constantly having our, our work assessed by others through peer review. Uh, if we're doing anything in the public, whether it's open source, whether it's, you know, doing a, a talk at a local meetup or at a Laracon, doing podcasts, I've done a whole lot of these things. And every single time I, I have these sort of doubts of, you know, oh, is this actually, is, are people going to care about this? Are people going to like what I have to say? Is what I'm saying wrong? Um, so, yeah, and from what I've heard from just speaking to other people is it's incredibly common. Um, and I imagine it is in other industries as well. I mean, I can't I can't speak for, for other industries, but for software development for sure, especially with the way that everything is constantly changing, all the things we're kind of expected to know and all, what all of our peers are doing as well, just seeing, you know, what other people in the public are doing and thinking, oh, how can they do all these things, get all this open source work done, they're working for someone else and doing all these things. Uh, I think that all definitely, you know, feeds into it. I think one of the problems that people have with code reviews is that whether people mean to or not, they attach themselves to the code they write. Absolutely. It's hard not to. Yeah. I mean, it's a creative process. Having someone else say, that's, you know, I don't like that or that's wrong, even when they say it well-meaningly, and there's obviously ways to do peer review that are better than others in terms of how you make the other person feel. Yeah. But you are still putting yourself out there. Um, and, you know, it's the same even with design work. When you're working with clients and you create, you're creating something and then you're saying, you know, do you like this? You know, and you, they're paying you money for it potentially as well. Yeah. And for them to sort of be like, no, I don't really like that. Can we change that? Can we do this differently? There's just a, a, a constant... Um, yeah, you're constantly being scrutinized and, and reviewed, or at least your work is, which, you know, as you're saying, it feels like it's then a reflection on you. So Yeah, one of the biggest things that I learned to do was not to care too much about reviews on a personal level. Whenever I've reviewed code, I've tried to keep it, like, not personal, like, you've done this wrong. It's more, yeah. this this is wrong, or this isn't quite right. Um as opposed to saying you've done it wrong. And I think those little subtle changes do help. Yeah, even just phrasing things like, oh, it might be cool if we try this, or did you consider this? Yeah. Rather than saying this, you know, you should do this, or just kind of giving them an instruction, but allowing them to, yeah, have some have some leeway and not make them feel stupid. And they may have considered other things as well that you haven't thought about. Absolutely. Uh, there's just ways to go about it that's that's more collaborative. Yeah, it's like the internet kind of made us forget how to socialize or be mindful of other people when code reviews are being done. Like it. Yeah, I mean, when you're behind a screen, behind a keyboard, it's the same as you know, chatting on on Reddit or something, or you know, leaving YouTube comments. People are just 
absolutely nasty because they're not seeing the real person that's right there. They're just seeing they're seeing text and they're behind a screen exactly. So, um, yeah, I think the same thing happens with code review. When you're working in an office and you deal with the people on a daily basis, I've still run into situations where things can be worded potentially better. Um, and I've definitely said things where on reflection, like a lot of the times, even just when things are written in text, sometimes the context is missing um, and things can come across in a very different way than what you intended, purely because it's, you know, text doesn't carry a lot of that, um, you know, the, the emotion and the way you say things. So even just adding in just little little emoticons, you know, like little emojis, a little smiley, just to so that the way that you're saying something is clear. Um, can you tell us about your experiences with mental health? What, How have they manifested with you? Um, probably the, the weirdest thing that ever happened was one day at work, I got very, very lightheaded. And I ended up needing to lie down on the floor under my desk. And I never really worked out what kind of happened there. Um, I mean, I, I was working at a very high pressure job and was kind of used to, uh, you know, these sort of high pressure situations. And I don't think anything that day was particularly from a work point of view um, pressure. I was going through some relationship issues at the time, which, you know, was probably actually the the underlying cause. But then when you're sort of just constantly solving problems and making all these decisions and dealing with t- like tight deadlines. Um, I think it all added up and yeah, it, it was kind of like my brain just was, yeah, it, it needed to, to go offline for a little bit to, to recover. <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? With mental health, you can't see it. Nobody can see it. And sometimes you can't even feel it yourself. You just, one day you'll wake up and everything is just too much. And it could just be a, a culmination of of lots of different things that have happened that on the when they're happening, you think, oh, it's just an, another thing. It, or you don't even recognize that it's a negative one social, one bad social interaction that's just annoyed you could be the thing that makes you click. And Absolutely. Yeah. The, the straw that broke the camel's back, as they say. I think for me, generally, it can just be quite hard when you've got things going on in your personal life and then you're working a, a high-stress job, having those two things sort of come together. And to be honest, a lot of the time I actually find my job can be quite helpful when things aren't going right, you know, in your personal life because it's a distraction. But there's times where it's just, it's yeah, it, it can be too much. On the flip side of that, though, distracting yourself from problems isn't always the best thing either. No, definitely not. Um, it's it, You're rarely actually making the problem go away. You're just putting it off for later, which, yeah, like you say, it's it doesn't necessarily make things better. Um, but it feels like you are at the time, so it's very tempting to, to not sort of deal with a lot of things. It's almost an easy short-term solution. Yes, definitely. What activities do you do outside of work? I know mountain biking and skateboarding, are they your escapes or do you do other things? 
Uh, I do those for for fun, and I'm very much a beginner at both of them. But uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn, you know, every weekend basically. Um, but I tend to try and go to the gym. I've actually been a little bit slack lately, but for quite a long time, I was going to the gym twice a week. Um, once a week, it might be a yoga session, and the other the other session might be like a um, like a CrossFit kind of high intensity workout. And I found that to be quite helpful. Um, it was definitely something that I had to force myself to do because I don't enjoy it. It's easier not to go. It is easy not to go, but I also feel really good about myself afterwards. So generally, I have to remind myself how I'm going to feel afterwards and how I will feel disappointed in myself if I don't do it. And generally, that's one of the ways I can sort of talk myself into those things is to think about how I'll feel if I don't do it. And then I'm like, well, I don't want to feel like that. So yeah, going going to the gym, I think is a good one. Oh, there's another thing I do, which is to just try and make the bed every morning. I read it online somewhere and it talked about trying to accomplish a very, very tiny thing first thing in the day. And I started doing this when I was, it was quite a few years ago now, I was going through a really bad breakup and I read about this particular technique to, to achieve a small thing to start the day with and it kind of sets the tone for the entire day. And making the bed was the suggestion and it's a, it's, you know, it's an easy one to do. And until that point, I didn't really do that. Um, so that was a, a habit that I, I kind of just forced myself to do and it became habit. And I mean, it sounds a little bit maybe cliche or like it's, you know, too easy or a bit silly, but I actually do think that it helped because it, it put my mind in a mode where I'm actually, you know, I'm caring, I'm doing something, I'm, I'm being proactive and it does, it does set the tone for the day. And these days I've, you know, I feel like I'm in a really good place mentally and I still, I still do it. And to be honest, if I, if I ever have days where I really don't feel like doing it, it's almost like an alarm bell to say, Hey, what's, you know, check in with yourself, what's going on where you actually, you know, why don't you feel like doing this? Yeah. It's a trigger by itself, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah. It's something that I've become, I guess, more aware of is any time where I start to feel like I don't want to do some of these things that I do normally, um, even, you know, going to the gym, if you sort of start to feel like you're not wanting to do it, it's like you're starting to not care so much. Yeah. Um, but out of touch with yourself. Yeah. And it's the same with even with uh, like with my professional life. I tend to consume so much sort of, you know, new content and trying to learn all these new skills. And if I ever find myself not caring as much about anything in that sort of a way, it's a bit of an alarm bell to say, hey, what's going on? Where's the passion gone? You know, normally I'm really I'm really passionate. I'm really motivated. Um, If that disappears for a bit it's and and maybe it's because something else is you know currently taking focus but it's something to be mindful of I think um I think with anything you know just being being more mindful being more aware of what you're feeling what you're going through and not letting things sort of just build up and up and up until you find yourself you know almost in like a crisis situation right yeah taking the time to to reflect yeah yeah. Even if it's something as simple as making the bed and realizing, hang on, I don't want to make the bed today. 
even though you've done that for the last yeah. six months or whatever that's a good good time to think hang on yeah if, if you start if especially if it's a few days in a row and it's like yeah what's what's going on as a woman in tech how do you feel you're positioned within the community it's definitely a tough one i do for the most part i try not to not to focus on it too much and maybe i should focus on it more but yeah, for for most of the jobs I've worked, I've never felt that I've been, um, you know, treated less or anything like that. I think that's one of the good things about the developer community, at least in my experience, is that there's, I guess with the the men that I've worked with, there's been less of, I guess, that sort of toxic masculinity. I think just with developers, there's there's less that are kind of this sort of hyper-masculine boys clubby kind of things. It definitely is a male dominated industry, but I don't feel that it's necessarily a toxic male dominated industry um, where you've got, you know, a lot of kind of, yeah, boys clubs, all that sort of stuff. Um, I have, I'm, I'm very kind of painfully aware when I go to conferences and things like that, that, you know, I'm one of maybe, you know, three or four women, in a, you know, a hundred, you know, plus people events, but I always feel very welcome and I've never really had any sort of situations where I've been made uncomfortable. Um, I've found that, yeah, the developers that I've worked with have always been very respectful. Why do you think women don't tend to attend conferences? Because there's definitely women working in the industry. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the jobs I worked at was was primarily women actually and I don't think it was deliberate uh, every other job though has been almost entirely uh, males developers I actually think that a big part of it is potentially visibility mm-hmm. one thing that I picked up on it's it's a bit of a funny story but I was trying to teach my kids how to mountain bike because I want to you know try and get them into some of these sort of sports that I'm into which is maybe a bit selfish so I wanted to show them what was possible and I'd find some videos on YouTube of people doing both mountain biking and skateboarding and you know just adults basically and they'd watch them and they wouldn't see it as something they could do but when I found videos of kids doing skateboarding like kids their own age kids that look like them basically doing skateboarding and mountain biking all of a sudden they could kind of go, oh, okay, I can do this. And I kind of saw parallels to that with representation in different industries. If you don't see a lot of people that look like you doing something, then you're not going to feel as much like you belong or that you can do it. So I, th- I think just having more visibility, more representation is a really, really big key because there's absolutely no reason why uh, any of these minority groups can't be in tech. It's just that they don't feel like they can. So, yeah, I think that that kind of moment when I noticed how much of a difference it made for my kids just to see people they could relate to doing these things as opposed to people that they couldn't relate to, it was it was like night and day as to as to how they felt about their own abilities to to do these things. And I guess I... I just didn't really twig onto the fact that for for many people having that kind of representation helps and it's helped for me in other areas seeing you know I I'm far more inspired watching women skateboarders for example 
you know, videos on YouTube, it makes me feel a lot more like, oh yeah, I can do this, you know? Yeah, just, just seeing people that you can relate to that are closer to your like to your own attributes, whatever whatever particular attributes they might be, whether it's gender or sex or experience or whatever it might be, it's a lot easier to feel better about your own abilities when you can compare yourself because it's we can't help but compare ourselves to other people. It's not a good thing necessarily to do, but it's I think it's just part of the human condition, right? Yeah. Um. So yeah, at least if you're comparing yourself to people that are more like yourself um, is probably more healthy than only looking at people that are, yeah, that you can't relate to at all. Okay. So there have been cases of employers letting mental health impact their decisions on existing or potential employees. Do you still think that this is prevalent in today's society? Absolutely. I think it's definitely a very big factor. Um, We kind of talked before we started recording about there being this kind of taboo and I talked about my own concerns about you know talking about mental health publicly and how potential you know future employers might go oh you know Jess has mentioned you know having you know some some mental health problems we can't employ her um so I think that there's definitely still a taboo about that particularly when you're looking at government jobs um anything like that and one of the things we talked about was how if I was wanting to hire someone, seeing someone actually try to, to talk about these things and, and seek help is actually a, is a green flag to me rather than a red flag. But I think for the majority, for the mainstream, these things are still seen as, as red flags, even though if someone had broken their arm or something like that, and had, you know, had sought help and, and, and overcome it or whatever it might be, or just learnt ways to, to sort of to, to work with it, they would be, wouldn't be judged in the same way that someone with a mental health problem might be. Yeah, which is really strange because, like you say, if, if you can see somebody's had a mental health issue and they've, one, been self-aware of it, two realize they need to do something about it and then three actually done something about it that is surely a much better position for somebody to be in than somebody that's just you know put it all into a cupboard a drawer somewhere and not thought about it and then it's bubbled up and it's finally gonna go off at some point isn't it yeah i think there's just i guess it's there's there's so much unknown especially because we don't talk about it um, but I think it just is this kind of, you know, the, the main portrayals of mental health issues, particularly in the media, are always these kind of extremes and everyone assumes the worst or they just don't know what to think. They don't know how necessarily to deal with it. Whereas if someone's got a physical ailment, there's, a physical ailment, there's kind of a, a roadmap of how, you know, w- what that experience is going to be like. Whereas with mental health, we're still... We're still figuring these things out, right? Yeah. I think the, the vast majority of people probably experience some sort of mental health problems, right? I don't think that the, the taboos are particularly helpful at all. Well, do, you, do you think that the fact that more people are talking about it will change how employees are about the subject? Yeah, I think so. I think there's definitely, I've noticed a, 
a sort of a shift, particularly in our community, of talking about these sorts of things. I think, uh, for example, at Laracon in New York, Justin Jackson's talk, he spoke about his own mental health issues. And for, I think, the majority of people that I spoke to, his was one of their favorite, if not their the top favorite talk of the event, even though it wasn't a technical talk. It was just a very sort of raw, relatable talk that, yeah, a lot of people weren't kind of expecting, I guess. They're kind of thinking, I'm at a tech conference. People are going to tell me about the latest, you know, whatever it is in, in code. And to have someone talk about things that I think most people in the audience could relate to was, yeah, potentially a, a, a turning point in our community, potentially. Um and, you know, things like your podcast now are, are really good to see. I think it's, it's yeah. I believe that everybody exp- will experience it at some point in their life. And unlike a programming language or a framework or whatever that some people aren't going to use, some people will use, you can relate to it because at some point you've probably felt a similar way to everybody else in the room. Yeah, for sure. But it's also hard to to know because you don't get some sort of a, you know, a flag that pops up to say you're having a mental health problem right now. Mm. It's not like when you get a, you know, a, a broken arm, to use that example again, where there's something you can quite easily look at and point to or have someone say that's definitely a problem there. So I think a lot of people will not necessarily recognize it or just assume that they're just under pressure or they're just a little bit down, a little bit sad and not necessarily realize the difference between being a little bit um yeah just i don't know between kind of yeah i I don't even know how to describe the difference between depression sadness stress anxiety they kind of all feed into each other yeah and i think that's that, that really is why i describe mental health as a spectrum yeah it isn't very linear yeah and i don't think you want to not kind of deal with it or learn how to deal with it until you're having a crisis because you won't have the tools to deal with it then and you won't necessarily recognize what's happening until it is too late it's it's almost a one of the characteristics of of depression is that it almost masks itself yeah and and doesn't allow you to think critically so it doesn't allow you to be to reflect and and see what's happening. Do you think that you're more confident talking about your experiences now because others have? Yeah, I'd say so. I think that particularly with Justin's talk was, yeah, was, was really eye opening. I think I saw people on Twitter afterwards, particularly when his talk was published online and he shared it. Uh, I believe Marcel, Marcel Possiot, he talked about how, he related to it and again for me seeing some of these other people talking about it as well was it was just really really good and affirming to see that these people who you kind of look up to and are doing these amazing things are having the same sorts of experiences the same sorts of burnout um, stress anxiety all these same types of things. So to have other people share it is is really important and it's one of the reasons that I, you know, was was really happy when you asked me to talk here. 
um, because, you know, I'd like to be able to hopefully share and, and talk about it as well, even if, even if it's just, you know, just being giving people the um, the confidence to maybe share their own stories as well. As a mother, and having gone through your own mental health issues and continuing to go through those, what is it that you were like for your kids when they're older, they're getting jobs, they're dealing with their own issues? What is it that you would like to see for them? For me, I think the the ability to be open and feel comfortable talking about what they're going through not feeling this need especially as they're both boys not feeling that they have to bottle things up in order to be to meet some definition of of manliness um so yeah i think just just the ability to to share to just be able to cry you know like not um yeah not feel like they have to bottle it up i think it people don't realize how brave it is to find help yeah the only thing i've sort of found in that respect is trying to find someone you can talk to that you can i guess feel comfortable with and relate to can sometimes be a little bit tricky and talking to friends and family is obviously good but also just you know seeking out a counselor um, can be good, but yeah, when you're when you're seeking professional help, just trying to find someone that you can really sort of gel with, it's almost like you need to to interview a few a few people potentially. And I guess all that is to say is that for people who maybe are finally feeling like they can go out and do that, to not if if the first person they talk to they don't feel comfortable with after a few sessions to not just write it off completely because and it doesn't mean that that the the person they were seeing wasn't good or anything like that it's it just comes down to connection it's the same as when we you know find partners and friends in in life we're not going to be compatible with everybody so there's no reason to expect that we're also going to be compatible with every single uh, mental health uh, expert out there either i do think that there is a a perception that that you know seeing a therapist or a counselor or anyone like that it's just talking therefore it's how is it actually going to be effective i can go and talk to my friends but i think people need to people who who do have those sorts of feelings need to recognize and remember that there are particular techniques that these people can use and that they are trained to use techniques such as uh, cognitive behavioral therapy um that yeah, on the surface you're saying, oh, they're just talking to me, but they are they're, they're employing, you know, proven techniques that are. Um, uh, well, is there anything else that you would like to discuss? I guess the the only thing I've sort of been thinking about lately is just how how vulnerable we can be while we're coding, um, in terms of the, in terms of when we're programming we have to load all this software into our head and solve all these problems day in, day out and, uh, you know, deal with distractions, removing us out of our, um, you know, out of our, out of our flow, as you might call it. And 
then potentially dealing with employers that don't necessarily understand some of those nuances, what it's like to be uh, distracted when you've, when you are kind of in, in a flow state. Um, yeah, I, I guess I just wish that employers were sometimes more aware of, of those things. Do you have any experience with getting employees to understand that? What I can say is that the the employers that I've worked for that have been what I guess I would call the best have actually been programmers themselves at one point and have recognized some of the the things that it's sometimes takes a developer to understand simple things like how sometimes the easiest thing well the thing that might look the easiest can take days compared to something that looks really hard might actually be a 10 minute fix there's so many things like that with with programming that on the outside people don't necessarily realize and can put undue pressure on you um, because they don't recognize those situations and even just recognizing things like flow state and what distractions can do and how a distraction is is often more than the, the the distraction itself the five minutes that the person's talking to you the actual sort of the time it takes to get your head back into um into that right place where you can start coding again where where time kind of disappears and you're you know just yeah in the flow um having employers recognize that i think is is sometimes a bit rare and it's not even just context around the code that you're writing uh, like on the face of it there's the there's like different database engines browsers accessibility like there's so many things that you need to consider whilst you're working on something and whether people are aware of it or not they are doing it they are considering the context um yeah and trying to explain that to somebody that isn't a developer or has experience with like writing a book or whatever that where that context is needed it is very hard to appreciate it i think which is difficult because as a developer i wish people would but i also appreciate that they can't at the same time so it would be nice to have and a when way you combine that with you know problems like a, a bug in production some sort of you know something that's affecting user data all these things that can go wrong particularly when you've got a lot of users uh, using the software and there's, you know, there's the, and sometimes the stakes can be fairly high. There can be quite a lot of pressure and you've still got to, you've still got to perform those same sort of tasks. You've still got to get in the right mindsets, load all these things up. Um, so yeah, it, it can sometimes be quite a lot of pressure to be under and still need to perform at a, at a very high level and still make sure that you're considering the implications of what you're doing um, to not just add more bugs and make things worse potentially. What makes you, Jess, a happy dev? I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is is Laravel view and tailwind. <laughs> 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 um, for me, it's working with um, frameworks and things that have really considered the developer experience in the same way that we try and consider the user experience. So I think that's one of the reasons why I like Laravel, Vue, and Tailwind so much is because it's very apparent how much the developer experience is at the forefront of uh, of all of those particular tools. Um, and yeah, just working with people that 
that understand what software development is, that understand that sometimes you can't estimate things reliably because you haven't done it before. Um, you're constantly treading new ground. So, yeah, just having people that, that understand that, um, yeah, those are kind of the things that I guess make me a happy dev and having time to to play with new things, to further my own uh, skills because, you know, we've got to try and keep up with, with everything that's constantly evolving and changing. So having the time to just, just mess around and not necessarily be uh, doing something that's, you know, corresponds to dollars in the bank account necessarily, um, at least directly. Uh, having a, yeah, just having that good balance of being able to, to just mess around. I mean, that's kind of how we all got into programming, I think, and or a lot of us and, and why we enjoy it because we we get to be creative and, and make things. And sometimes if we get stuck in a job where we're just, you know, following the, the, the trodden path all the time, we can, yeah, it, it can get a bit, I don't know. Monotonous. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Jess. It's been a pleasure to speak to you finally. Thank you very much for, for having me. It's, uh, yeah, it's been an honor. Thank you very much. And thank you for talking about your experiences. I appreciate it. It can be quite scary, especially on a public space as well. Yes, yes. But uh, like I said, it was, you know, it helps having other people before me doing it. And hopefully I can help others do the same. I'm sure you will. And I, yeah, I really appreciate you doing this podcast <laughs> and, and sharing your experiences as well. Thank you. Thank you again, Jess. I'm recording this outro with yet another cold. I apologize for that. This is the last episode before 2020, which is crazy. We're now living in the future. I will see you very soon, guys. Have a very happy Christmas and a happy new year.